Oh, Father, as we come to your word now, we thank you for your word, and we come as hungry beggars, deserving nothing, but knowing that you are a good father who would not turn your children away. So we ask, O oh Lord, give us our daily bread. Feed us with your word. Show us what you would have us do in light of your word. Help us, O oh Lord, not to be just hearers, but convict us through the power of your spirit working in us to be hearers and doers of your word. For the glory of Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 15. We're going to be starting John chapter 15 today by looking at verses 1 to 5. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. This is one of the best chapters in all of Scripture. Uh, if you thought it took a while to get through chapter 14, it might. Um, so we begin 15. This is just a, a rich, rich chapter. Um, so we begin uh, today in, in this study of this incredible chapter. This is a chapter, if you were to ask me uh, what my favorite chapters of the Bible are, uh, I, I'd say in the New Testament there are three chapters that have really, really just um, ministered to me, strengthened me, taught me so much. Uh, one of them would be Romans chapter 8. One of them would be Ephesians chapter 2. And the other one would be this one right here. These are chapters that uh, just put me in awe of God's redeeming love and the grace that He has poured out on us. But this one in particular speaks to me and ministers to me because of my, some of my own experiences. When Christina and I moved to Las Vegas back in 1998, uh, we, we bought a house that didn't have a very big backyard. It was maybe only the size of a school bus or so, uh, which I realize is a lot bigger than a lot of yards that they make today, uh, including here in the Seattle area. But at the time, that seemed like a, a pretty small backyard. But the wall, our, our back wall that faced the house behind us or that separated us from the wall behind us uh, wasn't a solid wall. Rather, it had pillars that were filled in by, uh, by wrought iron. And so uh, the awkwardness about it was that our neighbor could look right into our uh, backyard and into our house, and we could look right into his <sighs> Trust me, it was, it was really awkward. So we came up with the idea of uh, trying to find some kind of vining plant that we could grow um, between the pillars on the wrought iron, something that would fill in the space and make it at least a little bit more difficult for our neighbor to, to see into our house and for us to see into his. And so one of the first purchases we made as homeowners in Las Vegas was four grapevines. When we moved to the, uh, to the Seattle area, uh, as we were driving across the state, we saw the enormous vineyards uh, across the middle of the state. And so one of the first things I did when we got moved in and settled in and everything is I went out and I bought two grapevines to, uh, to plant in the backyard. Uh, one of them is actually still alive today. Uh, we'll be talking about that a little bit today. Uh, the other one died before too long. But all this is to say, I know a thing or two about growing grapevines. And I believe that this will be helpful for all of us uh, in our passage today as we continue our study in John's gospel as we now come to the 15th chapter uh, where Jesus is going to open with the parable of the vine dresser, parable of the vine and the vine dresser. In chapter 13, we saw the Last Supper and the beginning of what's called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus told them that he was going to be leaving them, and that follows into chapter 14 where he's encouraging them that it's for their good, it's, for all, it's only for their benefit and their blessing that he leave them because he would go to the Father and ask the Father to send another advocate, another paraclete, the, the Holy Spirit, who would dwell within us. Uh, but chapter 14 was really where the real meat of the Upper Room Discourse was recorded as Jesus, throughout that chapter, just gave his disciples words of comfort and assurance to live by and to find peace in for the uncertain times that he knew were coming. But one of the themes that Jesus touched on repeatedly uh, back in chapter 14 had to do with the importance, uh, you might even say, 
the priority of love-motivated obedience. Now, I do think it's important to add that hyphenated adjective, love-motivated, before obedience, because any obedience that isn't motivated by love is just superficial. It's just surface level, and God is not looking at the surface level. God is looking at the the heart, right. God is looking at the heart. So if it's just superficial, if it's not motivated by love, then it's motivated by something else. Uh, God isn't pleased by uh, obedience that's motivated by legalism. He's pleased by obedience that's motivated by love. But what Jesus said specifically is this. He said this back in chapter four, uh, 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He repeated it again in verse 21. He said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he, will be, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And then in verse 23, again, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So all that to say, you would think that Jesus considered obedience to him, love-motivated obedience to him, to be really important, right? And indeed it is, but it must be motivated by love and not by something like legalism. The parable that now begins the next chapter, chapter 15, is going to illustrate what Jesus has already been teaching the disciples in the previous chapter about obedience, Uh, The point of this passage is pretty simple. The point of the passage that we're going to be looking at today, verses 1 to 5 in chapter 15, is that Christ's people will bear fruit as they abide in Him. Christ's people will bear fruit as they abide in Him. It's not that they might uh, uh, bear fruit if they abide in Him. It's that they will bear fruit as they abide in Him. So this parable begins with, Um, another I am statement. Uh, We've seen uh, six of them so far, so this is the seventh and final I am statement that John records for us. Let's look at verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And there is so much theology just in there. Uh, There are actually sermons that are just on those words, and they are fantastic. But let's keep in mind that Chapter 14 ended with Jesus leading the disciples out of the upper room and out into the world. So they're, they're heading to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is located on the Mount of Olives. Now, we can't be sure exactly why Jesus starts telling this parable, the parable of the vine and the vine dresser. Uh, we don't know exactly what, uh, what sparked that as an illustration. Uh, there are some very convincing arguments that uh, they would have been able to see the grapevine that decorated the door to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, it was reportedly, this, this door to the temple in Jerusalem was reportedly a, a beautiful, exquisite sight. Uh, wealthy Jews had donated gold and, and jewels and draped them all over this vine, which made it kind of a, a big, a gigantic work of art. Uh, that just kept growing. But Josephus, a secular historian from the first century, Josephus reported that the grape clusters coming from this, uh, this grapevine at the door of the temple would create clusters that were as tall as a man. Um, how accurate that is, we don't know, but the fact is it, it at least had a reputation for producing huge clusters of grapes. So maybe that's what prompted this parable, seeing the door to the temple. But there are also some very convincing arguments by other commentators uh, that Jesus led the disciples around the city of Jerusalem, which would have been surrounded by walls that had grapevines growing across them. Uh, and, and there are still others who make very compelling arguments that uh, there would have been vineyards along the way between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane, Whatever the case, we don't know what causes Jesus to start talking about a vine, but apparently there's something that he sees. 
um, somewhere that sparks this, uh, this illustration. And so Jesus uses symbolic imagery that the disciples would have been really familiar with to illustrate what he's already been teaching them back in chapter 14. So Jesus begins by saying, I am the true vine. In fact, there are some fantastic sermons that are just preached on those five words. Uh, fantastic sermons. There's so much theology just in these five words. They are rich in symbolism. They are rich in significance. They are loaded with theological truths. But let's begin by reconsidering and remembering the significance of the words, I am. Because this is the seventh and final I am statement. Uh, Each one of the declarations, each one of the I am statements Uh, is an instance in which Jesus claims to be God in the flesh. As the words, I am, come from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, To refresh your memory, Moses had asked God uh, who he should tell the Israelites sent him, and God's response was to say, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when this passage was translated from Hebrew into Greek, uh, those words, I am, were translated ego eimi, which means I am. Ego eimi. Those are the same words that Jesus uses here. He is claiming, therefore, to be the exact same God who sent Moses to the Israelites. This is a claim to deity. This is him claiming to be God in the flesh. Now in this case, Jesus says, I am the true vine. We've seen him say, uh, I am uh, the light of the world, uh, you know, things like that. In this case, he says, I am the true vine. Uh, and by the way, this is not to be taken as um, being opposed to a false vine or being compared to a false vine. Uh, what we need to understand is that the grapevine was actually a symbol of Israel as a nation. Which, by the way, is exactly why uh, the adorned grapevine was such a significant decoration in the temple in Jerusalem. So we we find this symbolism actually repeated throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Consider Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9, which says, You removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The idea here is fairly clear, I think, uh, that Israel, who had been enslaved in Egypt, was like a vine that had been brought out of, uh, out of Egypt and into a new land. And so God drove out the people of the land the same way that a vine dresser will clear the ground before planting a grapevine in it. And he planted them, he planted Israel as a nation in the land where they put down roots. Now, why did God do that? It's because he desired fruit, good fruit, abundant fruit, sweet fruit. But did Israel as a nation ever produce good fruit? And the answer is found throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. They failed over and over and over again at bearing good fruit. They failed miserably. They never produced any good fruit. Isaiah records their dismal failure in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 of his book, where he writes, Let me now sing for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard, a well-beloved, my, my well-beloved that had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones flourish. So God gave them everything that they needed in order to flourish. And not only to flourish, but to produce good fruit and fruit that was pleasing to God. But Israel did nothing but fail. All the fruit that they had, God had no use for it. It was worthless. It was not good fruit. So what did God do in response to them bearing only bad fruit. 
He tells us in the verses that follow, in verses 3 to 7, where God says this. He says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, tell, so now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress." This is a prophecy that God is going to destroy the vineyard. God was going to judge Israel by removing the hedge of protection that He had placed around her and she would be trampled. Why? Because she did not bear good fruit. And not only that, but the place where God planted her would now be overrun by briars and thorns. That is, by by weeds. By, by things that nobody has any use for, that, that just get in the way. And finally, God would make sure that no rain would fall on this vine, on Israel, to keep it alive. All because Israel had failed to produce the fruit that God desired. All because Israel failed to produce fruit that was pleasing to Him. All that was worthless. Similarly, God warned Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, Long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every green tree you have lain down as a harlot. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? It's from uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. So the disciples, as they're listening to Jesus, they would have recognized that Israel was symbolized or or represented by a vine. But a vine that had failed and only failed. A vine which God had warned of sure judgment, which would come in in year uh, 8070, ultimately. But when Jesus says, I am the true vine... What he's doing is he's contrasting Israel's failures. All they did was fail with the fact that all he did was please the Lord. They produced nothing but bad fruit. Jesus produced nothing but good and pleasing fruit for God. So Israel was not a true vine. They were a failed vine. Uh, But what they failed to do, Jesus didn't. Jesus accomplished. So his life was pleasing in every way, to the Father. Uh, He upheld all the the laws, all the requirements of God's law, and he lived a perfectly sinless life. Isaiah would say this of the Messiah when he would come. He he wrote in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. That's describing how Jesus would come. So Israel was symbolized or represented by a vine, but they were a bad vine. They were a barren vine as far as good fruit went. They produced grapes, but the point that Isaiah made earlier was that those grapes were, were sour, that they were worthless. They, they could not be used. It was bad fruit. In fact, every instance in the Old Testament in which Israel is likened to a vine is given in the context of their failures and their faithlessness. How ironic then that they use the vine as their national symbol even to this day. But Jesus didn't fail. They never succeeded. Jesus never failed. He accomplished what the Father sent Him to accomplish. He is the true vine, therefore. The true vine, as evidenced by the Father, declaring openly at His baptism, this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. That's something that God could only say of Jesus. He could never say that of Israel. Jesus, and only Jesus, therefore, is the true vine. He is the only one who could bear fruit that was pleasing, good and pleasing to the Father. Fruit that the Father could use. Fruit that glorified the Father. 
and pleased him. The fruit that Israel could not produce, Jesus did produce. And his people, who are united to him by grace alone, through faith alone, would also bear fruit by virtue of their union, their connection to the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does a vine And he says the Father is the vine dresser. What does a vine dresser do? That's what we're going to get to here in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me. Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So just like a vine gives life to its branches, which in turn bear fruit by virtue of their connection to the vine, Jesus is the true vine which provides life to all who believe in Him, causing them to bear fruit. And not only to bear fruit, but to bear good fruit. So one of the key phrases that we have to see here, if you circle things in your Bible or if you underline things in your Bible, every time you see these words, in Christ or when Jesus says it, in me, you want to circle those. Those are very significant words. One of the key phrases here in verse 2 is in me. Jesus is not talking about branches that are not in Him. He's not talking about disciples who are not in Him. He's only talking about people who have been grafted into Him by grace through faith in Him. So pay very, very close attention to those words. In me. Because as we've seen, they are actually at the very core, at the very foundation of the true believer's identity. Before you are anything, you are in Christ. Before you are a man, before you are a woman, before you are an American, before you are whatever, you are in Christ. That lays the very foundation of your identity. Everything proceeds from that and not from anything else. You are in Him. It is at the core, the very foundation of your identity. So Jesus is only talking about branches that are in Him here. A fact which seems to have escaped many, if not most, commentators and translators, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But there are two things that Jesus says the Father does in regard to the branches that are in Him. He's not talking about branches that are not in Him. Only in Him. United to Him. The first role that the Father as the vine dresser plays is He's the one that... This is the one that seems to confuse a lot of people. The NASB says He takes away branches that do not bear fruit. Other translations use very similar language. The NIV says He cuts off branches that don't bear fruit. But there's a very serious problem with translating it this way, and I think you've probably already caught on to it. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce articulates the problem very well. He zeroes right in on the problem writing this. He says, generally, this has been understood to be a purging away of dead branches in precisely the same sense that branches are said to be thrown in the fire and burned in verse 6. But I am convinced that most translators have missed the true meaning of the term cut off in this instance, end quote. Or in the case of the NASB 1995 translation, they missed the meaning of the Greek word that gets translated takes away. So Boyce continues, he writes, quote, Undoubtedly their translation has been made to conform to what they know or believe is coming in verse 6, but the translation is not the best or even the most general meaning of the Greek word which lies behind it, end quote. Now the Greek word that lies behind it, the Greek word that gets translated to carries away or removes or cut off uh, is iro. Iro. And iro has four primary meanings, and those meanings are from the most common to the least common. Number one, to lift up in a literal sense, to, to pick something up or to, or to lift it up. Uh, number two, to lift up in a figurative sense, like to lift up your eyes or, or to, uh, to lift up your spirit, you know, things like that. That's a fi- more figurative sense. Number three, uh, it means to lift up with the implied idea of carrying something away. And number four, to remove. 
Now, if you were to look for this word Iro throughout John's Gospel, you'll find it used all four ways throughout his Gospel. So how do we know which one it means? Well, number one, by the context. Number two, by comparing it with other verses from John's Gospel and seeing if it is in line with all the other things that are very clear. Uh, that's one of the rules when you're interpreting Scripture is uh, whatever, whatever, you're trying, whatever you think it might mean, you have to test it against every other verse in the book. Because if it contradicts something else, you've you got to look for a, a different definition of the word or whatever you think it's contradicting, you are wrong about that. So that's one of the rules of hermeneutics, of, of interpreting Scripture. But Boyce says this, uh, and, and obviously what we can see is that the translators have chosen either the third or the fourth most commonly used uh, definitions for Iro. But Boyce says this, and I, I agree with him, given my own personal experiences in uh, growing grapes from a vine, Boyce writes, quote, but the verse makes better sense and the sequence of verbs is better if the first and primary meaning of the word is taken. In that case, the sentence would read, quote, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. End quote. Now, that presents us with some interesting questions that I think I can help us answer. Why would he lift it up? So that it will bear fruit. Because a, fruit, a vine that's trailing along, along the ground isn't going to bear fruit. Now, there are a lot of things that can prevent uh, a vine from producing fruit. And one of those things is if the vine is just trailing along the ground. In fact, the grapevine that we still have that I planted uh, almost 11 years ago, 10 and a half years ago, um, I thought it died when the second uh, grapevine died. But like I said, I bought two. Uh, one of them did die, one of them didn't. I thought they both died. Two years ago, I was mowing the backyard, and as I got to the spot where I had planted one of the grapevines, there was a vine on the ground. There was no fruit on it, but there was a vine there. And I realized, I recognized, oh, this is a grapevine. This goes right to the place where I planted this thing, you know, seven years ago at the time. And so what did I do? Did I cut it off? No. I lifted it up. Because that's the way that grapes grow. They need to have something to grow up and, and droop over. So I lifted it up. How many of you have ever seen a grapevine? You know, you've seen pictures of it. Usually there, there's a trellis or some kind of uh, thing that holds it up and you see grapes dangling down. That, uh, see, there's a reason that vine dressers do that. It's because a vine on the ground won't bear fruit. Grapevines need to be lifted up in order to produce fruit. So what kind of gardener would see a branch trailing along the ground? It is connected to the vine, but it's trailing along the ground, and so they would respond by cutting it off. That's not what a gardener would do. That's not what a vine dresser would do. No, he would lift it up so that it could climb up on something, so that it could drape itself on something. But even when a branch is lifted up and able to, uh, to, to climb up something and, and drape down, sometimes a, a branch still won't produce a whole lot of fruit or, or good fruit. Sometimes it'll just produce little pieces of sour fruit. That's because the fruit, uh, while it's ripening on the vine, it needs to be exposed to the sun. A branch that isn't exposed to the sun isn't going to produce fruit because it needs the sun. It needs light, and at night needs heat in order to produce fruit. Uh, those are the conditions under which fruit is produced. Uh, if, it's, uh, if it's not connected to the vine, or if there are other leaves or branches blocking it from getting sunshine, it will be barren. So what do you do with a vine that isn't bearing fruit? You lift it up. You lift it up so that it grows above the things that are blocking the sun from reaching it. And further, uh, Boyce argues this. He says, quote, To translate the word Iro by lifts up gives a proper sequence to the Father's care of the vineyard indicated by the verb that follows. Thus, he first of all lifts the vines up, then he cuts off the unproductive elements, carefully cleaning the vine of insects, moss, or parasites that otherwise would hinder the growth of the plant. End quote. And so, looking at the context here, 
which we always have to do, which translators uh, have to do, given the context, which is the Father's care for branches that are in Christ. Not for branches that aren't connected to Christ, only branches that are in Christ. And given what we know about vine dressing, I and uh, many others believe that the better translation here is lifts up. He does not take away branches that are in the true vine. He does not take away disciples who are in Christ. If they are in Christ, they are in Christ. This verse doesn't support the idea that somebody can lose their salvation as some interpret it. What Jesus is saying here doesn't contradict what He has clearly taught in so many other places throughout John's Gospel. For example, He said in John chapter 6, verse 39, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Or, he said, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He doesn't say except the Father. He says no one will snatch them out of my hand, period. He says my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's from chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. And so the vine dresser, cutting off these branches that are in the vine, not only goes 100% against what the vine dresser actually does, uh, a, a, what a literal vine dresser actually does, but it contradicts other passages that clearly refute the idea that the Father would remove a believer who is in Christ. The Father is not in the business of cutting off anyone or removing anyone who is in Christ. He's in the business of tending to them, of caring for them, of securing them so that they will bear glory, uh, fruit to the glory of Christ, His only Son. A.W. Pink is another one, by the way, who agrees. Uh, that's the way to translate it. He notes this. He says, quote, It would be more accurate and more in accord with the analogy of faith to translate every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he lifteth up from trailing on the ground. So the first thing, that the Father, as the vine dresser does, is this. He lifts up branches that gives them what they need to have life. He draws them to Christ. He creates a sense of devotion and love unto Christ in them in order that they would have all that they need in order to bear fruit. Secondly, the second thing that the Father does, He prunes prunes the branches that are in the vine that are already yielding fruit in order that they may yield even more fruit. In this way, there are no branches in the vine that do not bear fruit. The Father makes sure that every branch in the vine bears fruit, that everyone who is in Christ bears fruit. So the Father removes, He prunes the things that would obstruct or prevent us prevent the branch from bearing more fruit than it already has. He's removing things that might seem natural, but which are ultimately harmful to the yield of fruit and prevents it from increasing. Now we understand this principle, right? This one is a little bit easier than the first one. We understand that the Father prunes. We understand that He disciplines, that He removes things from our lives that inhibit us and might be detrimental to our growth in Christ's likeness. See, His purpose isn't to make us happy. You know that, right? His primary purpose is not to make us happy, at least not by the understanding of the flesh. Rather, it is to make us holy and to find happiness in that. Romans chapter 7-4 reveals another purpose. We, our purpose isn't to be comfortable, but to bear fruit. Romans 7-4 says, Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, here we go, in order that we might bear fruit for God. And to that end, we're not going to bear it on our own. You and I, we're so weak and so faithless in the flesh, we're not going to bear good and pleasing fruit on our own. The Father, therefore, is active in the Christian's life, pruning, disciplining, 
Breaking the Christian free from sinful habits, from spiritually unhealthy relationships, from anything that would prohibit you from bearing more fruit in your life. He snips away your old values. He prunes away your old priorities piece by piece until every spiritually detrimental factor is removed. There's only one reason that a vine dresser prunes, and that is this, to get as much fruit from the branch as he possibly can. And that is what Jesus says the Father does with every branch that is in him and has already produced some fruit. So this is right in line with what we're told in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God doesn't spank the neighbor's kids. He spanks his own. It's out of love for his children that he does this. The father doesn't tend to the neighbor's vine. He doesn't discipline the neighbor's kids. His discipline toward his children isn't driven by anger. It's not driven by wrath. It's driven by love for his own children. And dads, you know how this works. You have a love for your kids. And when they're doing something that they shouldn't, you love them enough to correct them, to to, to discipline them so that they won't do it again and cause harm to themselves. So first, the Father lifts up every branch that isn't bearing fruit, and then He prunes the ones that are. By the way, what what do you think would happen if He didn't do it in this order? What if he was pruning uh, vines that were, uh, or branches that were running along the ground? What do you think would, would happen there? I mean, considering what these are pictures of, uh, what sense would it make for God to sanctify us without first justifying us? What sense would it make to, to break us free from bad and sinful habits that obstruct our, our growth in likeness if he hasn't already drawn us to Christ and removed the old heart and replaced it with a new heart? No, all that would make us is hypocrites and professors of a false, Christless religion. No, it's only after we are drawn to Christ by the Father, after we are lifted up and filled with love for Christ, that we become capable of truly bearing good fruit. So let's be clear about this much. If if there's nothing else you take away from this, take this away from this sermon that there are no branches that are truly in the true vine which do not end up bearing fruit. There are no branches that do not end up bearing good and pleasing fruit for the glory of Christ. We are not saved by bearing good fruit. We're saved in order to bear good fruit. And bearing good fruit is the only proof that our profession of faith is real. If we, are a, if we are a branch and we think we're connected to the vine, but there is no fruit in our lives, we need to examine ourselves. You will know them by their fruits, Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, verse 20. And God knows us by our fruits as well. And so with that said, let me ask you today, friends, to examine your lives. To think about your life in the silence of your hearts and minds. And ask yourself, are you bearing fruit? Are you, are you bearing fruit for the glory of Christ? Now, you might say, well, what does it even mean to bear fruit? Okay, well, let's start with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, you might not have all those things at 100%. You might have moments where you lack self-control, where you lack gentleness. What about the fruit of repentance? That's another one. True repentance, that is. Repentance that leads to life, not death. And there are two kinds of repentance, one that leads to life and one that leads to death. So you should see these things in your life to some extent if you are connected to the true vine, if you are in Christ. Now, you won't find them in your life perfectly, You won't be exactly like Christ with any of these fruit. 
but are they there at all? Are they, are they even starting to grow in your life? If you're not sure, the answer is not to examine your life harder. It's not to look more closely at your life. If you can't find fruit in your life, don't keep looking at yourself. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and believe. Do you already believe? Okay, well, faith is part of the fruit of the Spirit. That word faithfulness in the, fruit, in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, it's the same word that gets translated as faith elsewhere. Christ. So if you already have faith, okay, there's, there's fruit of the Spirit. There's fruit. But look to Christ in that faith and pray that He would cause you to yield a beautiful harvest of fruit for His glory. Pruning does involve outward trials, but it doesn't always involve removing. There's an implication here of adding, specifically of adding the cleansing of God's Word as Jesus continues. Look at verses 3 to 5 with me. He says, You are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus says to the disciples who were already clean, that they're already in him. And then they were about to be pruned, right? They're about to be pruned by their circumstances uh, when Jesus leaves them. Uh, He says to them, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now what's neat here? There's a neat play on words that you can only find kind of in the Greek here, uh, but I'll try to help you see it. Uh, The word clean is actually the noun form of the same word used for prunes, the verb, in verse 2. So it's the same word, clean and prunes, uh, just used as, in a, as a noun in one place and as a verb in another. So how were they already cleaned or how, how were they already pruned? And he says, by his word. By his word. In other words, the scriptures are the primary means that the Father uses to create spiritual growth and change in our lives. If you aren't being regularly exposed to the Word, your growth will be slow at best and non-existent at worst. God did not intend for any of us to be stagnant in our faith, friends. No, God intends for His Word to do all sorts of things in our lives. To comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. To humble the proud And to encourage the humble, to show weakness to those who think they're strong, and to strengthen those who think they're weak. This is exactly why Paul would say of the Scriptures, not only that they are breathed out by God, as he writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, but that they are profitable. They are beneficial to all of his people. For what? For teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Nothing else in the world is said to do these things. Nothing except the Scriptures. God uses the ministry of the Word to accomplish those purposes, to teach us, to offer us reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. What this means, friends, is that we must regularly come to God's Word to be cleansed. Not for the sake of gaining just a bunch of head knowledge, but in order that our hearts and our minds would be pruned, would be trimmed, that our values would be shaped, that we would be cleansed by the Word. There's a saying that I believe is true and and applies here. That saying is that soft preaching results in hard hearts, and hard preaching results in soft hearts. And that is to say that preaching that is designed to make you feel comfortable, preaching that is not uh, confrontational in any sense, uh, preaching that does not deal with the hard issues like sin and repentance and backsliding and temptation and things like that, ultimately it's, it's terrible for us spiritually 
in the end. Uh, you might have heard me call it cotton candy preaching. Uh, it, it tastes good, but if, what good does it do? It's just sugar. It's not good for you. No, we need the full truth. We need the full counsel of God's Word in order to prune away all the sinful inclinations that we have that inhibit our spiritual growth in Christ's likeness. And this is all in order that we may bear more fruit. And there's one key that Jesus gives us to doing this. Or at least doing it effectively. Look what He says in verse 4. Abide in Me. Abide in Me, and I in you. Now, there are actually three ways to understand what He's saying there. First, maybe Jesus said, you must abide in Me, and I have to abide in you. Just like a declaration. Uh, Secondly, maybe Jesus meant it as a promise, meaning if you remain in me, then I will remain in you. Or it can be seen as a command, an instruction. Abide in me, remain in me, live your life in me, and thus see to it that I also remain in you. And I believe it should be taken this third way, as a command, as as an instruction, To abide means to live, to dwell, to intentionally draw near to Christ and to live your life according to His instructions. Back in chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said, If you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That word continue is actually the same word that gets translated abide here in John chapter 15. So there are two very important things that Jesus says about abiding in Him here. First, He says that if we abide in Him, we will bear fruit because He will abide in us. That's for the same reason that a branch that is connected to a vine will continue to bear, to produce that vine's fruit. The vine gives the branch all kinds of things. It gives it sap. It gives it water. It gives it nutrients from the soil, all which allow it to produce fruit. And if we abide in Christ, He will supply us with life, eternal life, with grace, and with His own power working in us through the Holy Spirit. He will guide us. He will provide for us. He will give us the strength that we need to endure. He will transform us. And we will bear fruit for Him as a result of our union with Him in addition to the Father's providential care for us. Providential and ongoing care for us. The second thing that Jesus says about the importance of abiding in Him is that if we don't abide in Him, we won't produce fruit on our own. We won't bear good and pleasing fruit. In fact, he finishes this passage with a statement that should scare some people. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Make sure we understand what Jesus is saying. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, let's make sure we understand what Jesus is saying here. He's not literally saying that you can't do anything apart from him. Uh, no, there are, those who are not in Him do plenty of things. They sin endlessly. Uh, apart from Christ, some people, uh, they go to church. In fact, they give regularly to the church. Uh, perhaps they even build huge megachurches. And they can make quite a name for themselves. We can accomplish a lot of things apart from Christ. But what we need to understand is that whatever we produce, whatever we accomplish apart from Christ, is ultimately, in the end, worth nothing. It is worthless. Just like Israel's fruit. Only by being in union with Christ, not only truly believing, but also regularly submitting ourselves to the means of grace that He has given us in order for us to grow, can we produce anything that truly matters, that is truly good and pleasing to God? Richard Phillips notes this in his commentary. He says, However glorious it might be to our own eyes and to the world, all that we do apart from Christ and all that the church accomplishes by worldly means is really chaff and dead branches. End quote. 
And yet, let me encourage you. Let me leave you with a word of encouragement, friends, that if you are in Christ, that this last clause that Jesus spoke here in this passage, apart from me, you can do nothing, should also be taken as a great comfort to His people throughout the ages. Because that statement also applies to the unbelieving, rebellious world that we're surrounded by. Apart from Christ, they can do nothing. They can try to destroy the church. In fact, throughout the ages, they have. They can force us to close our doors. They can throw us all in prison, all in an effort to thwart God's purposes, Christ's purposes in building His church. But in the end, all of their efforts are in vain because whatever they try to do apart from Christ will be pointless will not produce anything. They can close us. They can lock our doors. We'll just go and gather in the parking lot. They can block that off. Okay, fine, we'll gather in our homes. Uh, They can tell us not to do that. Uh, They can arrest us. We'll we'll gather out in the streets. Uh, We'll we'll gather in the forest, in the woods. Uh, They can put us in jail. We'll gather there. They can kill us. And we'll gather together in glory and worship God there, where they will be locked out. Apart from Christ, His enemies can do nothing of value, and they cannot stop the church from prevailing against hell's gates. Christ's people, on the other hand, will all bear fruit, bear Christ-glorifying fruit, as we abide in Him, and He abides in us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this passage. We thank You for Your Word, for the way that it teaches, reproves us, corrects us, and trains us in righteousness. And we must confess, O Lord, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That is the personal testimony of every single one of Your people that apart from you we were dead branches, not connected to the vine, worthless, ready to be thrown into the fire. But by your grace, by your great mercy, you sent Jesus, the true vine, to accomplish what Israel never could, what no person except Christ could ever do. So we thank you for his perfect, sinless life. We thank you for crediting that perfection, that perfect life to the lowest of sinners like us, that we may be reconciled with you, that we may be clothed in his righteousness while he took our sin and paid the penalty that that it was due. What grace and mercy. Thank you for grafting us into the true vine. We pray, O Lord, that we would bear much good fruit as we submit our lives to the cleansing of your word and to the means of grace you have given us by which we may grow in Christ's likeness and by his power and by our union in him produce fruit that is good and pleasing to you for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.